There's, uh, there's nothing like uh, getting ready for the announcers by being stormed by all of your biggest fans. It's great. It felt good. Hey, it's good to see you. If, you. if you're new with us this morning, my name is Pastor Andrew. I am the campus pastor here at North Aurora. I'm really glad that you've joined us for worship. I hope this morning that you can be encouraged by the good news of who Jesus is. Not who Chapel Street is, but who Jesus is. Because Jesus is good. He has given himself for us. And that's why we get together and celebrate every week is we want to remind ourselves of how our King, our King Jesus, how He has changed our lives. Uh, There's a couple of things I wanted to make sure you guys knew about this week. Uh, First one is coming up real hot. It's our baptism class at the end of this month. Uh, Baptism is going to be a a great thing to celebrate together as a church. I mention this all the time. One of my favorite things to do together, getting to celebrate the story of how this message of Christ is truly transforming lives. Uh, If you have any interest at all about learning about what baptism is, then please do uh, join us for our class on October 29th, uh, and we'll, we'll chat a little bit more about what that looks like. It's not a commitment at all that you have to do anything. Uh, it's just a chance for you to learn more. Um, and in conjunction with that, on November 12th, when we celebrate our baptisms, uh, we are going to have kind of a celebration here at church following the service. We'll have lunch provided, so uh, we'd love for you guys to mark your calendars and be there for that. One of my favorite things to do together as a church is just celebrate and eat around tables together be a great occasion to invite a friend, right? You can even tell them, come to church today and you get a free lunch. No one will turn that down, right? Hey, well, I want to invite you to stand with me as we go into worship this morning. Uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, when we come into this place, there's a lot of things that we bring in here. This morning, maybe you're here because you, you kind of want to make sure that you're doing the Christian thing and you want to be in church. Maybe you're here this morning because you're feeling uh, a little down, a little weary, and you need to get recharged. And I want to invite you this morning, wherever you are, Uh, to come before the throne of grace, the throne of Jesus, and be reminded, what is it that he's done for you? Uh, Because he has come to give you life and life to the full. So would you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump into worship together. Father, I thank you that we are in your house today, and we come from a lot of different places. Some of us come into this place ready. Some of us come into this place weary. Some of us come into this place hoping that we can bring something to you. But God, we, we are thankful that wherever we are, we come in this place to celebrate that you hold all things together, and you bring all things to us in your Son. And so, God, this morning, we want to see him better. We want to understand Jesus. We want to wrestle with Jesus. We want to know him more deeply. So, God, come, give us your spirit in this place, and let us know him better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, my name is Molly Gaston. I'm a junior at Chapel Street and I'm 16 years old. This past June, I was given the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Ecuador with about 75 other students and leaders from the church. I'm Jacob Van Rossum. I am 17 and I'm a senior at Geneva High School. I felt called to go to Ecuador because it's a trip with just a bunch of different people and just a bunch of new experiences that I don't feel like it's something that I would be able to see and feel here in America. Mainly we were there to serve El Refugio, which is this amazing retreat center for missionaries. The El Refugio team is a mix of people. Some are from Chapel Street, some are from just different parts of the world, different parts of Ecuador, and they speak different languages, like some of them speak fluent Spanish, some of them both English and Spanish, so it's really cool just to see like all these different people working together. So going to El Refugio, the impact for me, six months prior, I'd say, leading up to it, I'd pray every day uh, about prayer. And in specific, I wanted opportunities to be able to pray in front of people or pray with people, pray 
in front of larger groups, really. I didn't tell Tom Ward about this prayer of mine, but multiple times he called on me to pray in front of our whole group in Ecuador. One time it was even at the church service and we were ending service and Tom just called on me. He goes, Jacob, you want to pray us out? And I was like, whoa, that is, God, what? This is my prayer right here. I think around like the middle of our trip to Ecuador, we went to this woman's home called Casa Tau, and it was made up of women from ages 12 to early 20s who had children of their own or a child of their own. And this woman named Anna had taken them under her wing and really just showed them God's love through her, her guidance and her comfort. And just being in that house, it, you could just feel the overwhelming amount of joy. And I will never forget like the presence of God in that house. And I just remember one of the women who was 18 years old, she was able to share her testimony with us. And it was very emotional. And I remember just the contrast of feeling both so heartbroken for what she had gone through, but also so joyful for how it led her to God. I think that moment really showed to me that God's joy is greater than anything we'll ever go through. Like you can always find joy even in those hard times. A lot of times when we think of serving, we think that we have to have this special talent or this special calling to serve. But Ecuador really showed me that there's so many different opportunities to serve no matter who you are. I remember specifically uh, the VBS that we did, which is like the vacation Bible school for the kids of the town. And there were so many, I think there were like 300 kids there. To see those kids who only spoke Spanish, maybe like a little bit of English, and us who mainly spoke only English, interacting without even having to speak the same language was the coolest moment ever because we really saw that God's love doesn't have a language. Okay, so my group and I in Ecuador, we did a challenge to where we'd find three things throughout the day. And in the moment, we'd pray. So if you were, if you saw something amazing, you'd thank God for that. So you just say, thank you, Lord, for these amazing mountains that you've placed in front of us right here. You'd pray for something that was affecting you. Or the third part was just find a time that you can just pray and just talk to God. And then after that, something I've worked on is listening, finding times to read your Bible and listen to what the Lord has to say for you. Two students like presented with the opportunity to go to a trip like Ecuador or Twin Cities even. I just want to urge you to take that opportunity because it is such an amazing chance to grow closer to God as you also grow closer to this community of people who follow God. And even if it's something that causes you to come step out of your comfort zone, I just recommend going on these trips and pushing yourself a little bit because you'll know so much more about God, but you'll also know so much more about yourself and about the people in your community. The mission trip in Ecuador was so significant for me because just looking back that I always think of is how God's love was so eminent throughout the whole entire trip. Being able to see how he looks so similar in different people was definitely the biggest takeaway from the trip. I love uh, hearing the stories of our students and what God's doing in their lives. I love especially what uh, Molly said there at the end about seeing God in the people around you. And um, we're going to be talking a little bit about that this morning. Um, 
But just the reason we show those stories is because God's moving in the life of our, of our students, and I don't want any of us to miss that. I don't want any of us to be blind to that. We can kind of kind of hear about these things happening in church, but we're, you know, we're kind of in our own zone. Uh, but we have, I mean, over 150 students this last summer went out on trips to various locations around the world, giving their time, giving their, their talents and their heart to serve others, uh, and it's a beautiful thing. And in a lot of ways, our students are leading this church and some of the things that they're doing. And so I'm just thankful for them, and I want to celebrate what God's doing in them. But I also want to thank you, because in part, it's your generosity that allows us to serve uh, and disciple and encourage the next generation of leaders in our church. Uh, and if not for you and the leadership roles that you guys play as volunteers uh, and as those who give, we wouldn't be able to do that. So thank you so much for that. Uh, and uh, we're, we're grateful for all you do for Chapel Street. Uh, really quickly before we jump into today's message, uh, I just wanted to take a moment to let you guys know about something that we are doing as a church tomorrow that you're invited along to. Uh, I'm sure if you've been paying any attention to the news, uh, it's um, a discouraging time in the world. Uh, there's been a lot of really discouraging headlines, especially coming out of Israel this last week, uh, and just uh, really heartbreaking things. Uh, some of my own family are in Israel uh, and have been messaging us about what it's like over there. Uh, and it's scary, and it's not good. So I want to invite you to uh, a time of prayer that our church will be putting on tomorrow uh, at our South Street campus from 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. If you can join us, we'd love to have you there. We're just going to spend an hour praying, not only for Israel and for Palestine, but also just for uh, conflicts around the world. You know, Ukraine and Russia, though it's faded somewhat from the headlines, is still going on. Uh, and every day, some of the things that we've read about here this last week uh, in Gaza are happening in countless places around the world. And as Christians, we want to be a people who acknowledge that God cares deeply about those things, that God is not ignorant of those things, and that as his people, we are called to pray for the Lord of peace to come and bring peace. Uh, so I just want to pray now as we go into the, into the message that we would get God's heart as we look to his word, but also that God would move in some of these situations. So please join me in praying. Father God, we thank you that you tell us in your word that you are the one who breaks the bow, that you are the one who brings an end to all war. And Father, I thank you that the, the arc of all history is bending towards your return, at which point you will bring an end to all conflict and strife. But in the meantime, Lord, we live in this moment in between, Lord, where people grieve, where people suffer. And we thank you, God, that you are not deaf to their cries. You are not blind to their sufferings. And God, we just ask you to bring peace. We ask you to bring peace in Israel. We ask you to bring peace in Ukraine. We ask you to bring peace into the countless other places around the world that this morning we have no knowledge of, and yet you see those that suffer in them. Uh, and so, God, now as we come to your word and as we read about what it means to see those around us, God, we ask that your church here at Chapel Street North Aurora would be a group of people that see those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series this morning on James. Uh, we've been doing this for a couple of weeks now, and I'm, I don't know about you, I'm really enjoying this series. James is such an interesting book. Uh, if you remember from our festival, we said one of the interesting things about James is that James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother, of course, because Jesus uh, did, have not, did not have an earthly father, uh, and yet he, Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents, did continue to have children after Jesus was born. One of them was a guy named James, and he has a really interesting story. But he has written this letter to teach us, to tell us about what it means to follow Jesus, and this morning he's going to talk about partiality. Now, uh, when I was a kid, uh, I remember one of my favorite things to do was when we went on vacation, we would stay at, ho at hotels, and you would get the continental breakfast in the morning, right? 
Now, when you, we're all laughing because everybody, I think, has had the same feeling. Like, you go away as a kid, and the first time you discover hotel buffet breakfasts, it's like you've entered a new world of joy, right? Like, you just pick anything you want. And here's where I like it, because in, in Britain, this is one moment I will dog on my home nation. Bacon in England is terrible. It's like flabby and thick. It's go- Who said it's good? You are mistaken. I'm glad you're in church. May the Lord help you today. American bacon is by far superior, right? So, and I would always get the, 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 the real crispy bacon at the American buffet lines when I would come on vacation here. And you'd get the whole host of things. And the best part is you could ignore all the stuff that you don't like, right? All the gross stuff, the healthy stuff. You don't need any of that. I'm going to have six more donuts. Thank you very much. So I, I love that. I love the sense of the buffet. Now, here's the thing is, that kind of mindset of, of, of buffet living where you can kind of pick what you want and ignore the things that you don't want, that's actually something that invades a lot of corners of our life. It's not just something that happens in a hotel breakfast. We treat lots of areas of our life like that. In fact, I read a quote from a guy called David Platt. He's a pastor, and this is what he said. He said, I'm convinced that one of the deep, dark secrets of our religious subculture is that sometimes we want Christianity, and we want it on our terms, in a way that aligns with our preferences and accommodates our lifestyles. Regardless of what the New Testament says, we are happy to go to church, we're glad to be Christians, just so long as we don't have to make any radical changes in our lives in order to do so. We soften Christianity and create a religion that is opposite of what is in the New Testament. Now that's a, that's a pretty cutting quote, but it fits with James because James is a pretty cutting book. We had earlier, Teresa read us the passage that we're looking at this morning, James 2, 1 through 13, and James is a guy who does not pull his punches when it comes to telling you what the message of Jesus means for your life. That's the whole emphasis of his book. And he wants us to understand that following Jesus isn't in a buffet lifestyle. It's not a pick and choose. We don't get to rearrange it how we choose. And in fact, what we had last week is that James says, we need to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Christianity is not something that's given to us to kind of rattle around inside our heads to feel good about, but not impact and change the way that we're living. And in fact, what James says is that the the law of liberty, the gospel, the message of Jesus is like a mirror. We can look into that mirror and we can do two things. We can walk away from that mirror and forget what we have learned about ourselves, about the world, and most importantly about God. Or we can look into that mirror and be mindful and conscious of what God has revealed to us and live differently as a result. And so the rest of James's book is about that same message, about looking into the mirror, the mirror of God's word. What does this tell us about who God is, about who people are, about who we are, and how do we live differently as a result? And one of the unfortunate things that happens in our lives is that sometimes we don't just treat church like a buffet line, we treat people like a buffet line. And we're partial and preferential to certain groups of people, certain types of personalities. And that's what James wants to deal with today. And he wants to remind us that to the extent that you have understood God's love towards you, you'll understand God's love for other people. To the extent that you've understood God's love towards you, you will extend God's love towards others. So he's going to talk to us about three things. He's going to talk to us about the problem of partiality. He's going to talk about the principles of the kingdom. He's going to talk about the power of mercy. So let's talk about the problem of partiality. Problem of partiality. Now, all of us probably can can relate to this buffet idea. All of us can find areas in our life where we judge other people. For example, maybe you're driving along the highway, uh, I-88, and Andrew Griffiths is in front of you, and he's a terrible driver. And so without even seeing me, you already start profiling what kind of person 
this guy is who's in front of you, right? I always feel nervous now because I've got a Chapel Street Church sticker on the back of my car. And so I'm like, are people judging my church based on my driving, right? Because people make judgments like that. People profile. I'm sure there's countless people. You've been in a Target before. You're checking out, and the person in front of you and the person behind of you, you take one glance. And without even trying to, you create a whole bunch of judgments about that person based on what you can see about them, right? You assume certain things about them. Well, James says that that happens in the church too, and it's not good. It's a problem. It says this, James 2, verses 1 through 4, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and five clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? There's actually a call back to chapter one of James where chapter one of James is almost like a contents page. He kind of fires through a lot of things really quickly as a kind of a contents of everything that's gonna come. And in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he said, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, and the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So James is kind of now trying to get a little bit more in this idea of poor and rich in the church and the, the, the division that's occurring between the two. And he's actually also calling back to his own brother Jesus. James being very familiar with all of Jesus' teachings, now the leader of the Jerusalem church, he knows that Jesus said in Luke's gospel, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at the feasts. So James is saying the very thing that Jesus warned us against about the kinds of people who come into church looking for the best seats, it's starting to happen in the churches. It's starting to happen in our gatherings. Now, I'm not sure specifically what was happening. I don't know whether James is kind of giving us a a hypothetical scenario or whether this is literally something that's happened. Someone with a gold ring has come in and has been given a good seat. What we know about the church at this time is that at the time that James is writing this, the church is going through a lot of persecution. What happened kind of at the inception is Jesus kind of gathers his disciples together. The churches began after the resurrection and Jesus ascends to heaven. And this church starts and it starts in Jerusalem, right in the middle of Israel. And as the church grows, the persecution grows fast for the church in Jerusalem where James is the pastor. And they probably suffered a lot of different things. They probably suffered financial loss because they would be ostracized by the Jewish community in Jerusalem. They would be targeted sometimes by Roman authorities. And so perhaps what it was is they were struggling and they see wealthier people come into church and they think, you know what, let's make friends with them because they might be able to help us. Maybe they kind of convinced themselves that it was a good motive to give preference to some of the wealthier people coming in because the church really needs some support. We need some financial support in this time of persecution. I don't know what their motive was. I don't know what's happening, but I know this. James says, that's a problem. Preferential treatment is a problem. James says that it's so bad, in fact, that when we do that, we become judges with evil thoughts. It's a pretty condemning way to describe us. Favoritism is a problem. And the question we've got to ask ourselves today is, who do we favor? 
Who do we give preferential treatment to? In this church, in our office, in our neighborhood, in our schools? Who are we biased against? Who do we neglect to see? If you have preferential treatment or a bias against someone, it reveals two things. The first thing it reveals is that you have a misunderstanding of God's glory. And here's why. James, when he starts this little section, he says, Show no partiality as you hold faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Why does James call his brother the Lord of glory? It's because James understands when we measure ourselves against Jesus, there's no comparison. He's the Lord of glory. All of us might feel like we have this little bit of glory. We've got a really great resume. We've got some really great success stories in our life. But when we hold that against Jesus, it's pale. It's meaningless. It's irrelevant. The word for glory in the Bible, it starts in the Old Testament as a Hebrew word, kavod, which means weight. So whenever the Bible is talking about glory, it's not, it's not talking about kind of a, a popularity or a fame. It's talking about a weightiness. If someone has glory, has weight. So if a king was glorious, that king had great weight. He had great influence. The, the kind of gravity of all things pointed towards this king. And what James is saying is there is no king higher than Jesus. All the gravity in a room should point towards Jesus, especially in church. We should be holding Jesus up as the most glorious. And if that's true, if we're holding Jesus up as the Lord of glory, then why would we be given preferential treatment? Because all of us, compared to Jesus, are way, way down on the glory scale. All the gravity in the room should bend towards him. Second thing it reveals, partiality, it reveals a poor understanding of the heart of God. The end of chapter one, James said, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And one of the ways that we're stained by the world is through partiality, because it's a very worldly way of thinking. True religion, God says, is about taking care of the widows and the orphans. It's about not showing partiality. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, we're at the beginning of the Bible, God says to the people of Israel, he says, for the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. See, the heart of God for all people is to make space for us all, to welcome us all. He does not show partiality. God does not favor one over another. He doesn't take bribes. God is not just looking for the one who will give him the most attention. God, in fact, if we are going to say anything, tilts towards those who are vulnerable and in need and who can't bring themselves to him. He wants to favor those people. He wants to bring them to himself. And we've always got to be checking ourselves to have the same heart as God. That's why in church we want to care about our guests that come in on Sunday morning. If you're a guest, you matter to us. We talk about you and we look to you, not because we want to embarrass you in the crowd, but because to us, we know that God cares deeply about you and we want you to, to feel comfortable, we want you to feel seen, we want you to feel cared for, whether this is your first week or your 10th week. It's why we care about our kids in the back because those kids in the back matter deeply to Jesus Christ. You know, if you read through the Gospels, you know which crowd of people Jesus got so hot about being kept from him was children. I mean, if you, if you go to the Mark's gospel, you read between Mark 9 and 10, it's almost all about Jesus trying to teach his disciples to make room for children to be near him, to hear the stories too, to be a part of the things that he's doing. So as a church, we've got to be checking ourselves for this all the time. There shouldn't be anyone who comes through our doors who feels like they are being treated impartially. 
who feels like they are being unseen, uncared for, neglected. And this can't be just something for a leadership of a church. This is the calling that God has for everyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus, to see those around you, to make space for them, to care for them. We've got to watch ourselves to make sure that we don't show partiality. And we have to do that by remembering the principles of the kingdom. The principles of the kingdom. I, I love to play board games. We actually had a board game night here at church a few weeks ago. It was a blast. Uh, next time we do that, you should definitely come along. But my favorite game is unfortunately the game that nobody else likes to play is Monopoly. Monopoly, the game that has destroyed families for decades. <laughs> But I'm, I'm even worse with Monopoly because I like to invent my own rules for Monopoly, right? Like, I like to have all the extra rules. Like, if you land on free parking, you get all the money that's gone to community chest, all things like that. And then, then I met my wife, and I convinced her one time to play Monopoly with me. And remember this, we were in England, we played Monopoly, and she decided to give me a taste of my own medicine and come up with her own rules. And what she started doing is, as soon as she saw that I was winning, she started selling off all her properties to everybody else in the game for like a dollar, I was so mad about it. I was like, this is not how Monopoly's played. You're supposed to try to get Monopoly. She's like, oh, I just, I just want to give mine away. I just want to be generous. I just, you know. I'm like, this is not the principle of Monopoly. We're supposed to hate each other and destroy each other. <laughs> Sometimes we change the principles of the kingdom of God. We want to play God's kingdom out the way that we want it to look. We don't remember the principles of what this is that God has invited us into. This is his kingdom. It, it, it operates according to his principles, not ours. And so we need to remind ourselves, what is it that God has invited us into? What has he called us to? There's three principles that I think James highlights. And the first one is this. All of us are in spiritual poverty. Let me, let me read you James 2 verses 5 through 9. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Three principles hidden there in that little section. The first one is this. All of us are in spiritual poverty. James says, has God not chosen the poor of the world? Has he not chosen the poor to be rich in faith? See, the kingdom is populated by people who have great need. All of us. Every single one of us. And ridding ourselves of partiality starts with recognizing everyone who's ever walked into a church, no matter what their story, is on level ground before the Lord of glory. Because all of us have the same need. All of us are in spiritual poverty. It's a call back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, again, James's brother, he's remembering those words of his brother. He said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. People who understand their need, people who have got, okay, man, I, I lack and I need God to provide. Blessed are those people because they understand. They understand that in the kingdom we all have spiritual poverty. Second principle is this. All people are created in the image of God. All people. James says in that little passage, he says, you have dishonored the poor man by giving preferential treatment to the wealthy. Why have you dishonored him? Because he too is created in the image of God. It's not just those who look good, who have a lot. All people are created in the image of God. God has not chosen the best resumes. He hasn't chosen the most accomplished, the most influential. 
C.S. Lewis said this. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, and civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. There are no ordinary people, because people are made in the image of God. Martin Luther King Jr., similar kind of thought. He says, we must never forget this is a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. Martin Luther King fought for civil rights because of what he believed about God, what God had said about mankind. Do you know where human rights in general comes from in the Western world? Because believe it or not, we are still somewhat unique in the global uh, society as a place that has inalienable human rights. And that comes from the teaching of Jesus. If we go into the ancient world, most civilizations did not have a view that everyone has dignity and worth and value. In fact, people like Aristotle, Aristotle once wrote that if you really examine the human race, it's clear that some people were born to be slaves. He was considered a smart man in his age. People listened to that kind of rhetoric and thought, yeah, that makes sense. Jesus was the one who came along in the ancient world and said, no, that's not right. Human beings are created in the image of God. They will be treated with compassion and dignity and value and worth. Jesus was the one that set that up. The rights that were enshrined in our constitution based upon the principles that Jesus laid out. The laws in many Western countries developed out of the principles that the Bible teaches on human rights. Christians have done a, a lot of bad things. Principle amongst them, we haven't always respected our own principles that tell us that people are created in the image of God. But that doesn't mean that the, the, the principles out there are good didn't find their origin in Christ's teaching. And in fact, we understand it to be sin to, to mistreat our fellow man because of what the Bible tells us, that they're created in the image of God. Last principle here, third principle that James teaches us, the most important is that the most clear summary of God's heart is for us to love our neighbor as ourself. It's a Bible verse a lot of us are familiar with, and one that James quotes here. And James calls it the royal law. Calls it the royal law because Jesus, James' king, had said, love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, when Jesus said that, he was saying, someone had asked him the question, could you sum up for me everything that God wants for us? Can you, can you tell me what's the most important thing that God wants from us? And Jesus, the son of God, his answer to that question was, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. So to Jesus, you might be inclined to think, is he quoting two things there? No, to Jesus, those two things are inseparable. You want to love God? Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the most important thing. And what Jesus says is the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, everything is about that one principle. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because in doing so, you will honor God, you will love God. It's so important to Jesus. Jesus himself was quoting from Leviticus 19. Let me give you a taste of what that says. So the part of the Bible none of us like to read because there's a lot of other stuff in there that seems a little dry. But in the midst of Leviticus 19, it says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or to defer to the great. But in righteousness, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That wasn't new to the people of God when Jesus said it. Jesus was reminding them of what was told to them from the very beginning, that God calls us to be a people who care deeply about our neighbors. Treating them as our own flesh, valuable, worthy of recognition and honor, not withholding anything that you wouldn't want withheld from you. Do you know Confucius is sometimes uh, stated to be the guy that came up with this principle, Confucius. And, but actually what Confucius said is, you should not, uh, the way that he said it is, you, should not, uh, you shouldn't do something to someone that you don't want them to do to you, Right? So that's, that's the difference. It's a negative. Do you understand what he's saying? He said, don't do things to people that you don't want them to do to you. Jesus says, no, that's not good enough. I want you to do things for people that you would want them to do for you. So Confucius is saying, actually, as long as you don't do anything, that's you loving your neighbor. But Jesus says, no, that's not loving your neighbor. Loving your neighbor is actively, intentionally, thoughtfully, purposefully doing things for them that you would want them to do for you. Jesus raises the bar on what loving your neighbor looks like. Do you live that way? Do you live intentionally, thoughtfully, purposefully, seeing the people around you, recognizing the neighbors on your street, the co-workers who sit in the office with you, the people who sit in the row with you at church? Do you see them? Do you know their stories? Do you ask them what brought them here, what they're struggling with, how you can serve them? Sometimes we miss them altogether. And when we do so, we miss the principles of the very kingdom that God has invited us into. And that's why we need the power of mercy. We need the power of mercy. James, he closes this little section by saying, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James, James is kind of saying two things here. He's saying, one, if you break any of God's law, you broke all of it. So in God's eyes, what James says is that partiality, favoritism, is as detestable to God as adultery or murder. That kind of makes me uncomfortable because I have definitely been partial in my life. I have definitely shown favoritism towards certain people. And what James is telling me is that is as grievous and as serious as if I'd murdered someone. And we don't like that. It's difficult for us. We say, well, how could, how could God possibly judge us in that way? How could he treat us that way? Doesn't he understand that these things happen? It's a part of life. But to God, he's what the principle is. To God, all sin is really about rejecting his glory. All sin. And what I mean by that is that God has laid out a pattern and a design for life. And when we show partiality, or when we murder, or when we commit adultery, we are rejecting that design. We are rejecting what God said is good for us. We're rejecting that God's way is good for us. He's going to say more about this in chapter 4, so I won't go too deeply into it, but I, I want you to understand James's principle here. If you've broken one, you've broken all. 
because it's the heart of what the law is about, right? That's why Jesus said the summation of the whole law is to love your neighbor as yourself. So I don't, it doesn't really matter in which way you didn't love your neighbor. The heart was to love him. So if you haven't loved him, the law's broken. So we're in trouble. We're in trouble. And that's why that the second principle that, that James is kind of highlighting here in the end is that judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. He's again, he's calling back to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And what James is saying is partiality, favoritism, is a selective distribution of mercy. Partiality is a selective distribution of mercy. It's deciding some people get it and some people don't. And one of the best examples of this, and this is where we'll end, is, is Luke 7. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, we're told this story of, of a man named Simon who has invited Jesus into his house. Now, Simon is a religious scholar. He's a Pharisee. And uh, he has invited Jesus to come and dine with him. And in the ancient world, that was a huge kind of display of, I want to I engage with this person. I've invited them to come and eat at my table. And yet when Jesus shows up to Simon's house, we're told that Simon doesn't wash his feet. He doesn't have a bowl of water by the door to wash his feet, which to us, doesn't seem like much, but in the ancient world, that's an intentional insult and slight. If you had a guest in your home, the, the most basic way to one of them was to have a bowl of water so they could wash their feet as they entered your home. And the night goes on, and Simon slights Jesus again and again in the same ways. He withholds things from Jesus. Simon, you see, is inviting Jesus, but he doesn't really want to honor him. He wants to expose him. Simon thinks that Jesus is a fraud. Because he's heard about this Jesus who sits down with tax collectors and sinners. This is not a real holy man. This is not someone who really cares about God's law. Because he's fraternizing with bad people. So I'm going to invite him over so I can expose him. I'm not going to honor him. I'm not going to extend to him the courtesy that I would other guests. And then something interesting happens. While they are eating, they normally would have eaten in like a courtyard. And, a, and someone that is described as a sinful woman comes into the courtyard. She falls down at Jesus' feet. She starts to weep. And she wipes his feet with her tears and her hair. And she pours perfume on his feet. And Jesus knows Simon. And everybody in this courtyard is looking at this woman thinking, this horrible, sinful woman coming in here and sitting down with these two religious great men. You know what Simon thinks? Simon thinks, I knew it. This proves exactly what I thought. Jesus is a fraud. If he was a real religious holy man, he would never let someone like her touch him. And yet here he is. And Jesus being the brilliant man that he is, knows exactly what Simon's thinking. He says, Simon, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about two debtors. There were two men. One owed a great amount to a moneylender and one owed a little. But neither one could pay. And so the moneylender forgave their debt. And he asks Simon a really important question. He says, so Simon, you tell me, of those two people, those two people, one who had a great debt, one who had a little debt, which one do you think loves the money lender who forgave them the most? And Simon says, well, I, I guess probably the one who, who owed more. And Jesus says, that's exactly right, Simon. And then he says this. I'm gonna put it on the screen so we can read this together because this is, this is the most important, important part of the interaction. He then turns to the woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? Jesus isn't asking, do you physically see her? Have you noticed her? Everyone has noticed her at this point. What he's saying to Simon is, do you see this woman as God sees her? Have you noticed who she is, what her need is? Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You give me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins that are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who's forgiven loves little. Jesus said, do you see what she did? If you saw this woman, you would understand something about her because this woman, though you think she's sinful, she's understood the concept of mercy. She's got it. She knows that God has been gracious to her, kind to her, compassionate to her. And as a result, she's pouring herself out to be merciful to someone else, to extend to Jesus what the host of the party did not extend to him. Jesus is saying, you were partial, Simon, because you didn't see me. You were judgmental, Simon, because you didn't see her. And you're in danger, Simon, because you don't see yourself. The most miraculous thing here is that even Jesus' own impartiality is on display because he knows what's wrong with Simon and he's telling him this story because he loves him, because he wants to help Simon. The ugly thing in that courtyard, one, that sinful woman, was Simon. And yet Jesus says, I've got a, t- a seat for you too, Simon. Even though you don't see me, you don't see her, you don't see yourself, I've come for you. There's mercy for you. John Dixon said, human mercy is the proof of having received divine mercy. Mercy is so fundamental to the life of God's people that it's a sign of of who those people are. Mercy is a sign of who God's people are. Because when God's people have seen the mercy that's been given to us, the kindness that's been given to us, the fact that God, the one to whom we owe all things, has blessed us and has been gracious to us, It produces mercy in us and we want to be merciful to everyone around us. We want to make a seat for everyone around us. A couple of weeks ago, I got a a new wallet. Uh, I like this wallet because it's got a little button on the side you can flick your cards off. So I feel a little bit like James Bond now. But let's, let's say I had my old wallet with me, right? One's really tattered, one's really broken. It's kind of ugly, shabby looking wallet. And I got my new wallet. Does it matter which wallet I have if the wallet itself is empty of any credit cards? It's just an empty wallet. So whether you have a nice wallet or a busted wallet, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are got a great resume or whether you've got a bad resume, I want you to understand when you stand before God, you have no credit. You still have a debt. That was the point of the story that Jesus told to Simon. It doesn't matter whether you owe little or owe a lot. Both people could not pay. It doesn't matter the size of the debt because they couldn't pay it no matter what the debt was. That's how we all stand before God. Our wallets are empty and yet Christ in his mercy and his love comes to empty his wallet for us, to give himself for us. See, some of us think that God's getting a good deal with us. We think, oh, I'm not too bad. I'm I'm pretty put together. If If you've broken one area of the law, you've broken all. If you stand before God on the basis of your own resume, You will not stand long. You stand before God on the basis of Jesus' resume, you'll be welcomed as a child. You'll be loved. You'll be clothed with compassion and righteousness. He'll embrace you. That's what the good news is. That's what the gospel is. And that's what James is saying. He's saying, don't you understand what Jesus has done for you? If you understand that the Lord of glory has emptied himself for you, he's poured out his mercy on you, then you would pour mercy out on other people at every chance you got. Because you understand that your debt has been wiped 
And now you're invited to help other people come and bring their debt to Jesus so he can wipe that clean too. How dare you discriminate when God has been so merciful to you? That's what James is saying. Mercy has triumphed over judgment for us. Let's help it to triumph over judgment for others. Now he's speaking to my heart here. It's easy for me to stand here as a pastor and be like, this is who we've got to be. There is no one in this room more convicted by this passage than me. Because I see the corners of my own heart where I've shown favoritism, where I've been partial. And God says to me, son, that's not right. That's not who I've created you to be. It's not who he's created you to be. It's not his heart for his people. He wants to remind us as Jesus reminded Simon to be impartial. And if you've never asked for his mercy, if this morning you're feeling the weight of this and you're thinking, gosh, I've done this, I'm ruined. I want to remind you that all you need to do is to come to the Lord of mercy and say to him, I am spiritually poor. I'm in need. My wallet is empty. Have grace on me. I need you to cover my sins. I need your mercy to triumph over judgment in my life. I need to stand before you, not on account of my own resume, but on Christ's. You pray that, you ask that in your heart. I want, to, I want you to understand this morning, your Father will welcome you. God would never reject any sinner who comes to him, understanding their own need. And that's why the most important thing that we can do is to see our need. How you treat people is determined by how you see them. How you see them is determined by how you see Jesus. We must see ourselves as those who have received mercy. We must see our neighbors as those in need of mercy. And we must see Christ as the only one who has given mercy indiscriminately. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your son whose mercy has triumphed over judgment in our lives. And God, as, as James challenges us, as your brother challenges us to remember that the people that you have called us to be is a people of mercy, just like your son, I pray that we take hold of that. And just as Stetson reminded us earlier today that, Lord, we wouldn't be fearful. We wouldn't be fearful of those places where you reveal to us we have not loved our neighbors ourselves. But, Lord, in, in fact, we would come and admit and say, that's right, we haven't. Our wallet has been empty, so come and fill it with your mercy, God. Fill it with your mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. I hope that you have heard the message that Christ's mercy has triumphed over judgment for you. Come to him. Know him. And as we pray in a moment, we'll, we'll call Jesus to move our hearts to be like him. But just before we go, I just want to remind you, if there's any way we can pray for you, encourage you. Church doesn't end because Sunday morning's ended. Church is a people, a group of people. You can always come, receive prayer. I'm around. would love to get to know you. If you are a new guest, please stop by our welcome desk. We have a gift for you. and would love to get you know, to know you better. And one of the ways we can do that is if you uh, sign your name at the welcome desk so we can follow up with you. Or you can scan the connect code on the back of the seat in front of you. But now let me offer this morning's benediction as we leave. May we, because of the mercy of Christ, see ourselves, those who have received mercy. Father, may we see our neighbors and our guests, those who are in need of mercy. And Lord, most of all, may we see your son, Christ Jesus, the one who has given us mercy and in whom judgment has been triumphed over. We pray in his name.
Amen. I've carried a burden for too long on my own. I wasn't created.